Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, December 17th, and we're looking back at all the IPOs we've talked about during 2021. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's last lucky loon of lowered look-back losses, Brian Feroldi. Brian, how's it going? Dylan, it's going great. Very happy to be here with you. This is one of my favorite half hours of the week. <laughs> oh, you're buttering me up, Brian. You're buttering me up. <laughs> um, we uh, we thought it would be fitting. Uh, this will be the last Friday show that, that we do in 2021. Um, we thought it'd be fitting to revisit all of the S1s that we've talked about, uh, and and not just S1s, I suppose. We talked about uh, some SPACs as well, uh, because one, Brian, there were a lot of them. We did a lot of shows on S1s, and also it was an incredibly huge year for IPOs and public debuts of companies. That's right. We were spoiled for choice this year, which is funny because I thought we were spoiled for choice with in 2022 with the number of potential companies that we pointed out, but you have some data here that shows 2021 was one for the record books. Yeah, I, I think I'll start just by painting a picture of the year in IPOs for 2021. Uh, Ernst & Young just put out a report giving an overview of all of this, and it's pretty incredible when you when you look at the global IPO trends. Uh, a couple stats that paint a picture for you. Almost 2,400 deals raising over $450 billion in proceeds, both of those numbers up 60% year over year. And those are global stats. So, you know, you have to remember, we're not just talking about the U.S. markets here. Um, in the U.S., 416 IPOs, Brian, up 86% year over year and plenty of cash as well. Those IPOs just in the United States raised $156 billion. That was up 81% over the prior year. Interesting enough, within that group, uh, 128 of those IPOs were from the tech sector, and the tech tech stocks in general raised $69 billion. Now, as our listeners might surmise, a lot of those stocks had big first-day pops. In fact, the average stock in the U.S. popped 33% on its first day of trading. But as you may have noticed, if you looked at your portfolio recently, a lot of those IPO stocks have come back down to earth. And the average performance of the IPOs through December 7th, which is when this Ernst & Young study uh, ended, uh, the average stock was down 5% from its offering price. So not from the, the IPO die price, from the offering price. So there's been a lot of pain out there for IPO investors. Yeah, realistically, the average investor like you and me not getting our hands on any shares of these companies until they're probably well above that offer price with with some of the initial demand being so high. Uh, Brian, I think as we're we're recapping public debuts from this year, it, it, you know, the last year and a half has felt like a blur and kind of a time warp where it's been both six months and eight years, depending on how you you felt at various points. Um, I I have almost forgotten about the SPAC insanity that completely occupied the beginning of 2021. And the numbers there are absolutely staggering. Yeah. As many uh, IPOs as there was in 2021, the SPAC market was even bigger than that uh, in, in the US. So in the United States, there were 583 SPACs. They raised $152 billion. Those were record-setting uh, numbers on all accounts. 
We uh we didn't manage to hit 400 or so IPOs with our show, Brian, but we did over 20 uh, public debuts over the course of 2021. I'm going to give a quick rundown on all of the names that we managed to cover, uh, and I'm going to do my best to get it through it without getting tongue twisted. You might delight if I do, though. User testing, WeWork, Toast, Olo, Freshworks, Heartflow, Blend, Duolingo, Globally, Berkshire Gray, Confluent, Sentinel One, UiPath, Know Before, Affirm, Informatica, Vicarious Surgical, Squarespace, Bird Global, Hims and Hers, and Figs. That's that's a heck of a lineup of companies that we were able to get through. Well done, Dylan. Well <laughs> done. And as you point out here, the returns have been not all that great for many of the companies that we covered. Yeah, I think of that list of 20-ish companies, uh, I only see five currently in the green uh, from from where a lot of folks were able to get their hands on shares. Uh, I, I think given what we we just hit in terms of the, the massive amount of SPACs, the number of companies that came public in 2021, the returns of a lot of those companies, it's been kind of a weird year. Um, we, we always have a little bit of a bent, Brian, of being growth-oriented. And most of the companies that we're looking at in this this group here of these 20 or so stocks, really growth-oriented, kind of futuristic-looking businesses, those are businesses that have gotten hit very hard over the last couple months. You and I know that just from looking at our own portfolios. Uh, I'm sure that's the case for a lot of the folks who are listening to the show right now. The reality, though, is uh, while there is red for a lot of these companies, doesn't mean there aren't quality businesses here. That's right. And that is the numbers that we just spouted off aren't all that crazy. I mean, if you look historically at the data, the data shows that IPO stocks tend to be underperformers uh, moving forward because there's so much excitement and things going on at the day that they uh, come public. Uh, more importantly for, for me, when a company goes from private to public, uh, that is in many ways a cultural changing event for the company. Being a private company, you're not held to 90-day uh, earnings call estimates, and not every management team can manage the public's expectations the same way they can when they're a private company. Uh, for that reason, that's one reason why I tend to be stay away from IPO stocks with my own portfolio, with some uh, exceptions, of course. But I like to see how a company performs on the public markets for about a year before I would really get interested in it. Yeah. And we know that there's often a lot of demand for these shares early on. And very often, there's not a lot of supply. You know, With lockups and things like that, we tend to have a very, pretty short uh, amount of shares or small amount of shares uh, actually available for purchase. That can create some weird things in terms of pricing dynamics. A small amount of demand can actually kind of be outsized in the impact that it will have on the share price early on. A lot of the businesses on that list that I mentioned before, Brian, down 20, 30, even 40%. There are a handful that that posted positive returns in their in their debut year. Global E, Confluent, Sentinel One, Affirm, and Informatica. Um, we are going to highlight from that list, I think, a couple of companies that we're particularly interested in. Um, and, and I think we can kick off talking about Global E. Of the companies that we dropped in that list, hands down, the best performer, almost a clean double for people that bought shares early at this point. Yeah, Globally was a company that fascinated both of us when we were running through it. And as a reminder, Globally is an e-commerce company that's focused on direct-to-consumer cross-border payments. So if you are a merchant in one country and you want to set up shop in another country, Globally helps you to basically localize your your uh, your commerce site for that market, helps with things like payments, returns, shoppings, etc. So the company was in hyper-growth mode prior to coming public, and we've seen more of the same after it came public. Yeah, when, when we looked at the S1, uh, just to kind of quickly recap what we said then, triple-digit year-over-year top-line growth, 
good cash position, no debt, net dollar retention rate over 140%. And one of the things that we did note as kind of a knock on this business was the margins were below where we thought they would be for a company like this, especially because it's pretty easy to compare them to other players in the e-commerce space like Shopify and see what that opportunity could be for them. So that was that was one of the, the dings that we had on this business. Certainly. It was a high growth company, but a relatively low margin uh, business. But we've seen improvements and continued growth and even margin improvements as its reported results. So in the most recent quarter, the company's top line was growing at a 77% rate. Very impressive given that the revenue growth rate in prior years was very fast. So that's working off of a high base. The company's gross margin has expanded a bit. It's still low in absolute terms at 38%, but it is heading in the right uh, direction. And the company still has a long growth trajectory in theory ahead of it. The big news that came out after we did our report on this company, though, was with Shopify. So prior to coming public or at the time of the IPO, right after that, Shopify took a meaningful uh, stake in Global E. They actually became a 6.5% shareholder. And as part of that deal, Global E became the exclusive provider of cross-border payment for services for Shopify's customers. I think if you had to point to one thing for their huge outperformance, that would be it. Yeah, I think when you invoke Shopify, uh, it tends to get people's attention and get people excited, Brian. It certainly does. And that's one reason why the stock has taken off and the valuation has been uh, very high. Uh, it is worth noting that that streaming higher share price did not go unnoticed. Uh, some of the company's insiders decided to cash out of Globally uh, in September. They sold about 14 million shares for $64 a piece. Uh, given where the company IPO'd and where the stock headed, that isn't all that surprising to see. Still, it's worth noting. Yeah, and I think what's kind of interesting about this business is, uh, you know, Shopify is, you know, both a, a partner and a stakeholder here. I remember when we first did our S one on this company, uh, one of the things that we said, you know, this is this is something to pay attention to, is they were heavily reliant on DHL. Um, that was a big part of uh, the actual logistics of how they get stuff from A to B. Um, but DHL was also a stakeholder in the business. I think it was about five or six percent uh, shareholder. Uh, so this is a business that seems to have a lot of people that are in the industry supporting it, which I generally take to be a pretty good sign. Absolutely. I mean, who knows the market better than those major players? And who knows cross-border e-commerce better than a company like Shopify? So it certainly speaks volumes that they made Global E their exclusive provider. Yeah. Um, I will say my, my, my quick summary, my personal summary on this one, Brian, is I wish I had just bought the stock. <laughs> like, you know, so often we, we see these businesses uh, very often in, in spaces that we've seen other companies be successful. And there are times where you nitpick or, you, you know, you want to see, you know, a couple quarters of, of results. Um, and this is one where I was like, you know, in retrospect, there was probably enough here for me to take one, one small starter position just so I was paying attention to the company a little bit more instead of, you know, going through all those other S1s over the course of the year, you know, forgetting about it, having it fall on the back burner and then look and say, oh, this, this company doubled, you know, while I wasn't paying attention. Woulda, coulda, shoulda, right, Dylan? <laughs> but yeah, one of the interesting things about uh, Global E is it came public at roughly a $4 billion valuation. And that's a number that you could think, well, if this company executes and is successful, is there meaningful upside from there? I think the answer is yes. The good news is, even after that doubling that we've seen, the company is still about an $8 billion business. So the, in theory, there's plenty of upside left for investors, even from today. Yeah, you don't have to look far in the e-commerce space to see a lot of companies doing some similar stuff, and they're much bigger. Uh, you know, eight billion dollar company trading at forty times sales. 
it's 30% off highs right now. Uh, a lot of a lot of high growth businesses are kind of on sale at the moment. And so I think this is one where, you know, have to have to wait now that we've talked about it on the show, but I will I will probably uh, start a small position in this company at some point late in the year or early next year. Um, I, I think there's too much to like here. And I'm I'm regretting not buying the shares earlier, Brian. <laughs> There you go. I think that's a fine plan, Dylan. <laughs> um, the second stock that we wanted to zoom in on from that list was No Before, um, and and this might be one that uh, folks aren't as familiar with. Um, Brian, you want to give a quick rundown on who they are and what they do? Yeah, this was one of my favorite companies that we uh, profiled uh, this year. This is one that I had not heard bo- heard of beforehand, and yet after we went through the S1, I was very uh, impressed. So as a reminder, the company is focused on the cybersecurity market, but really not the tech side of the cybersecurity market. What they point out is that it doesn't matter how great your tech is, if the people that are using that tech accidentally let the bad guys in through a phishing scam. So no before provides software tools that uh, that allow organizations to test how peop- how uh, savvy their own employees are. They can do phishing scams and that kind of thing and all in an effort to make sure that the people that are using the products know what to look for. And in case that they kind of they come up with um with risks, uh, no before provides the education and tools to minimize that from happening. Yeah, and and I think this is a kind of interesting business. I remember talking with Tim Byers after we had done our S1 show on this company and you know, we were trying to figure out the bucket that this company fits into. And it's like, is it a software company or is it a consulting company that's wearing software clothes? It's kind of hard to tell. Yeah, I, I understand why that uh, debate was going on. But to me, this is clearly a software company. If there's one number that shows that, it's the company's gross margin. I mean, companies like... Um, uh, Accenture have gross margins that typically hover around the 40% range, which is really quite uh, quite good. Uh, Nobleforce gross margin, 85%. That's a That sounds like a software company to me. Yeah, it does. It's hard to argue with that, but I'm sure Tim Byers could make a strong case knowing Tim. Um, the the results for this company, uh, not as strong as, as what we saw with Globally, but um, not as disappointing as some of the other companies. Uh, I think you're... Uh, since it's come public, around a 4% dip in shares from where most people were able to get their hands on them. Uh, let's get people up to speed on, on what's happened with this company since we first talked about it. Sure. At the time of the S1, they had about 37,000 customers. Uh, their annualized recurring revenue was just shy of $200 million. That figure was growing about uh, 36%. Uh, the company was losing money on a net income basis, but generating free cash flow, and they had been uh, since 20, uh, 2018. And they had a good balance sheet. Um, they had a really good balance sheet, uh, $230 million after the IPO. What we saw in the most recent quarter was their customer account grew to over 44000 up from 37000 Revenue grew 43% to $64 million. Gross margin expanded to 85%. Uh, Annualized recurring revenue is up 44%, and the company generated $18 million in free cash flow. So financially, the company is thriving. Yeah. And, and I think in addition to all the financial updates you provided, uh, it's worth talking a little bit about some of the other stuff that's been going on with this company. Uh, we've seen uh, a secondary offering from this business, and we've seen some insider action as well. It's worth, worth checking in on that in the first 12 months that a company is available. 
Yeah, for for sure. Just like with Global E, some insiders were prohibited from selling at the uh, the IPO, and they decided to cash out on the stock. The stock was up uh, when they were when they were cashing out. So insiders did sell uh, 12 million uh, shares in August, and another nine million shares uh, in 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 November. Things like that are always worth putting on your radar and just being uh, aware of. One other news item that is worth uh, knowing about this company is they made an 80 million dollar acquisition of a company called Security Advisor in the last couple of months. Management team seems really interested in this because they believe it's going to apply, allow cross-selling opportunities and uh, allow them to launch new products that it will expand their adjustable market opportunity. I like that a lot. I mean, $80 million is like a drop in the bucket when compared to the size of this business. So those kind of acquisitions really uh, get the thumbs up from me. Yeah, this is a four billion dollar business at this point. Uh, Eighty bill, eighty million. Sorry, uh, as an acquisition is not betting the farm by any stretch. It's it's not at all. It's a tiny bet for the company, and offers uh, offers them the ability to potentially upsell their customers uh, over time. So, from what I see. Uh, Aside from the uh, the insider selling, which is of course uh, noteworthy, I think that No Before is doing just fine as a business. Yeah, and and I think especially for a company of this size, something that we have to remember with insider selling is people sell shares for a variety of reasons. And if you're uh, someone who was an early employee at a company that has come public, and uh, you know you're still maybe in the smaller mid cap space, um, it's entirely possible that a very large percentage of your net worth is in company shares, and you might be selling just to enjoy some liquidity after having that money locked up for a really long period of time. Um, you don't want to over-index to what you're seeing in terms of insider selling. You just want to make sure that people continue to have skin in the game, and that management team's incentives are aligned with yours. Yeah, I think that that's 100% uh, correct. I, I think that you can learn more from insider buying than you can from insider selling. Still, it is worth looking at. Brian, the third company that we're going to check in on is the one stock from the list that I did wind up putting in my portfolio. Unfortunately, not one of the companies that's in the green uh, in 2021. Uh, and that's Olo. This is a business that's down uh, some about like negative 27% um, from where a lot of folks were able to get their hands on it. Um, and, and folks may be the most familiar with this one because we talked about it uh, as an S1 show, but then we also checked in on some of their early earnings updates in part because they were so strong. Uh, for folks that are unfamiliar, this is a company that makes it pretty easy for restaurants to go digital. And I look at this, Brian, and I say, I don't know if there was any company more squarely placed at where the world was going over the last year and a half than Olo. And that could be why they came public. Yeah, uh, like you, this is a company that I purchased uh, very soon after they came public because it checked so many boxes for me. And so far, it looks like uh, we, we overpaid, but financially, the company is doing uh, uh, very well. So as a reminder, OLO stands for online ordering. What they do is they go to big restaurant franchise chains such as Applebee's, and they allow them to offer online ordering directly on, uh, on their website. That allows them to own the customer experience rather than outsourcing the customer experience to a third party like DoorDash. Now they can use DoorDash uh, or Postmates for the to fulfill the delivery uh, function, but it, it takes away it allows the the restaurants themselves to own the customer experience, which I see as a major benefit if I was a restaurant operator. Yeah, and I think when we first did the S1, what we said was, I think we finally found the company that's actually making money in meal delivery. 
And uh, what was staggering about this business was on top of a lot of other really strong financials, near triple digit year over year growth, uh, 120% Dabner, 81% gross margins, it was a profitable company when it came public. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, an easy company to root for in meal delivery because the dynamics seem much more aligned with the restaurants as stakeholders. Yeah, well, I, I always look for things that like make me do a double take when I'm going through an S1 at this point. We've done so many that there's so many software as a service companies like this. The thing that blew me away about Olo is at the time of its uh, IPO, it was profitable. And one of the reasons why was because it had to spend so little on sales and marketing. Uh, that makes sense given that they were focusing on a, a small group of customers and landing one. Uh, landing the the headquarters would would force all the franchisees to go out and become customers of of Olo. So that was really attractive to me. Yeah, a couple of the other things that we noted with this business, it, I mean, we were both clearly very impressed with it because we both became shareholders. Um, there were some things to keep an eye on, and one of them was that there was kind of this frenemy relationship with the meal delivery companies because those are generally the folks that orders get sourced to for logistics purposes and actually getting stuff to the customer. Um, you could see how some of those meal delivery companies might not want to have someone between them and the restaurant. And that was just going to be one of those dynamics that had to play out over time uh, with this business. Yeah, that, that was something worth worth noting. But again, I think of it from the restaurant uh, si side of things. The restaurant wants to own the customer experience. They don't want to pay all the hefty fees that come with relying on the the, the third parties to, to do so. However, uh, the customers, the, the restaurants themselves do have the option of fulfilling the delivery order themselves or outsourcing it to a, a third party. And if I was that third party, it's still revenue opportunities that Olo provides to them. So, But to your point, that relationship was a little bit dicey because they were friends and they were competitors at the same time. Yeah. Uh, Brian, I mentioned that this is down about 27% from where it debuted. Uh, I'm actually even worse off with my position. I don't know about you. I'm down about 38% uh, on the shares that I bought of Olo. Uh, what has happened since? Uh, I mean, the reality is there was a lot of growth built into this business. It's running into some very hard comps. We saw 125% year-over-year growth in its first quarter as a publicly traded company. What looked like a stellar earnings report. Uh, in subsequent quarters, we've seen 48% growth and 36% growth. This, I'm sure, like a lot of tech companies, is one of those businesses where you're like, we saw a lot of growth get pulled forward. We have to kind of figure out what this moderates to over time. How many companies did we talk about this year that that was the exact thing that happened to them? So much growth that should have taken place in 2021 got pulled forward to 2020. So they went from triple digit growth in 2020 to more normalized growth in 2021. I think 2022 is going to be the year that we see companies' actual growth rates. So that will be something to keep an eye on. But 36% growth is disappointing when compared to that 125% growth. Still pretty good in absolute terms. Yeah, and earlier you mentioned, you know, this was a company that did not spend very much on marketing and that was why they were profitable. We've seen a huge uptick in their SG&A spend and their R&D spend and that's taken the company into the red. Uh, I will say I think I'm okay with that. With where this company is, this seems like a once in a generation land grab for customers. They want to be in as many restaurants as possible because so many restaurants are focusing on becoming digital. I'm okay with them losing money, particularly because they have $600 million in cash and no long-term debt. They're in a very, very good financial position. 
that will be something to 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 watch moving forward. The other thing to to point out is they this company has always had competitors, but one other company that came public earlier this year is Toast, and Toast looks like a very tough uh, competitor for this company to keep an eye on. Now, it is worth pointing out that the two companies do have integrations with each other, but it is possible that some restaurants are choosing to go with Toast and just avoid Olo altogether. That's going to be something to watch. Still, when we dug through the S1 on Olo, like you, I was convinced based on what we saw that there was a really strong, compelling case for investing in the company. Only time will tell if that proves to be the right decision. Yeah, I, I think that I might take a lesson from my Upwork and Fiverr debacle where I where I picked the wrong horse uh, and just say, you know what, I'm going to buy Olo and Toast. And whoever whoever wins this market, uh, I will be a shareholder of. It, reality is they probably both wind up doing okay uh, long term. Uh, but but you know, I think you can, you can carry some of those lessons forward. I still remain bullish on Olo as a business. It's a $3 billion company valued at 22 times sales. We know that the comps are going to be wonky for a business like this and that the growth is going to be pulled around in some weird ways with the pandemic. I do want to see how some of the customer cohorts age for this business, but I feel really good about the cash position they have, and I feel really good about the tailwinds behind it. Yeah, uh, like you, I'm I'm in no rush to to sell my shares, but I do want to see the company how the company executes in 2022. Uh, to me, that will be the telling sign that uh, that I'm looking for. Yeah, um, and I think with that, that's that's our recap. I mean, it's it's incredible for us to have hit as many S ones uh, as we have, uh, and and I feel like you're right, Brian. We were we were truly spoiled in 2021. Um, this is our final episode of the year for Industry Focus. So, Brian, I have to say to you and our listeners now. Uh, Happy holidays. I, I hope you have a wonderful time uh, spending time with family and, and taking a little break from uh, doing everything you do for The Fool. Yeah, uh, I, I know me. I'm going to be working every single day, no matter what. But thank you for the sentiment, Dylan. <laughs> and before we close, I want to give listeners a heads up about some changes coming to The Motley Fool's podcast lineup in 2022. If you're a listener of one of our other programs like Motley Fool Answers or Market Foolery, you may have heard this already, but in January, Brian and I, along with our other industry-focused colleagues, will be moving over to a new daily concept of Motley Fool money. We'll still be doing S1 breakdowns, still covering earnings from Fool favorite stocks, but we'll be doing it as part of a podcast supergroup. Think of the new show as the traveling Woolberries of podcasts. We're excited for this new format and new show. We feel like it's a good chance to do even more of what we do best. And we hope you come with us for this next chapter. We'll be giving some sneak peeks of what's ahead in the coming weeks. Make sure you're subscribed to the Motley Fool Money feed to stay up to date. And in the meantime, we're surveying listeners so you can share what you enjoy hearing most, and we can work that into the new show. There's a link for that survey in the description of today's episode. With all of that out of the way, Brian, I hope you have an awesome 2022, and I'm excited to talk to you then. Dylan, I so enjoyed doing this show with you, and I look forward to doing this on Motley Fool Money in 2022. And right back at you, my friend. Have a wonderful holiday. You too. Listeners, I hope you guys have an awesome holiday. That is going to do it for this final Friday episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at MF Industry Focus. If you want more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on. Fool on.